Hi and welcome back to the Police Stories podcast. This is episode 23. There's a series of short stories about my uh, career uh, in the UK police force across three different forces, 28 odd years. Uh, although I generally deal with an incident uh, on each story, there is, as you probably know if this if you've been here before, a series of ramblings as well and <laughs> general thoughts as they pop into my head that hopefully if you're interested in police type things and always wondered why does that happen what do the cops think about that hopefully we'll answer a few of those questions for you so today we're going to talk about an incident and it involves uh, the CID now we've not talked about CID I don't think much at all but they play a, a big role in the police so uh, CID the criminal investigation department that's the detectives uh, within the UK police force and uh, they come uh, you know in various guises um, certainly the sort of career progression for them you know and a lot of people want to be dcs you know uh detective constables you know from right from the get-go you know that's all they join the job for that that's what they wanted to personally i never had any interest in it particularly i worked with them a lot because of the various sort of specialist roles i did over the year the diving and the firearms and stuff uh, you know that would always uh invariably be driven very much by the cid who would be tasking us to do our different operations for them but, um, you know, so people normally are, uh, you know, uniform cops to start with. I say normally because there is the odd occasion now in the UK where you can sort of direct entry as a detective. You sort of miss out the uniform bit, which does appeal to some. Um, I'm not massively on board with it because, um, you know, to my mind, if you're a detective, you need to understand, you know, and most cops want to know that the you know their other sort of senior management and their cops have come through the same sort of training process as they have you know you're a uniform cop you do your couple of years in probation and you work your way through before you then move on to more specialist units whether that's traffic firearms dog unit you know or cid um so generally you'd find uh, dcs detectives you know have a bit of service by the time they get there you know, they might well have, you know, kind of five years service or something by the time they actually start in CID. And from there, um, you know, you've got your kind of standard CID. So they generally deal with the um, the more serious jobs. I say generally because it's not always the case, but, you know, your cops on the street will deal with, um, you know, your basic assaults and things. But as soon as you start getting the slightly more serious assaults or uh, the more serious burglary, so maybe an aggravated burglary or a housebreaking where someone has taken, you know, a weapon with them. It's that bit of a step up, you know, cops on the street will deal with frauds, you know, lower levels. Maybe somebody's had, you know, a couple of thousand pound or something stolen as a result of a romantic fraud, which happens a lot nowadays where people are convinced, you know, that they're in a online relationship with someone and then invariably they'll be tricked into sort of passing money to say oh you know I live in wherever it is some far away country and I want to come and visit you uh, you know I'd love to come and visit you but unfortunately I can't afford it you know so of course they end up in a roundabout way asking for if only I had you know 1500 pound I could get a plane ticket and come and see you my love you know um, and unfortunately these people invariably they're speaking to perhaps are a little bit vulnerable you know certainly naive and end up sending this money expecting that their new you know um 
a new partner is going to come and visit them and of course the reality is either they'll keep it going and keep saying oh unfortunately you know my car broke down so i had to spend that money on that but now i want to come and see you again can i have another 1500 pound you know um and this is how it goes on so cops on the street will generally deal with those sorts of things but as soon as you start getting a bit more so maybe you know five grand ten grand fifty a hundred thousand pound frauds you're into CID. And in fact, if you're getting up to that level, the higher level I've just spoken about, you're probably into some sort of specialist, you know, sort of fraud department within CID that perhaps solely deal with those sorts of things. Like I said, they're almost like a force within themselves in that they'll have different units within the CID. You have your, your common or garden CID that will pick up those sort of raised jobs, if you like, those slightly uh, more serious jobs and then you have an, an upper level as well that will deal with um you know you'll have specific murder teams for example and um, quite often they're called mit teams major investigation teams murder investigation teams they can be um it certainly the met has uh hat teams or used to homicide action teams now that worked really well and they had a system where 24-hour cover within London, you know, you'd have a, a hat team on standby. In fact, more than one almost certainly. You'd probably have one at least north and south of the river. Maybe you'd have one on the four points of the compass. So you might have four covering the different boroughs because obviously London's a very busy place from a policing point of view. Um, and their job really would be, let's say you have a murder. So the uniform cops have gone out initially and they're dealing with, uh, you know, the, the first instance. I mean, chances are when the uniformed cops get on the scene, it happened to me on at least three occasions. People were, you know, sort of stabbed in the street and still in the process of dying, basically. Uh, and then they die there and then on the street. And um, so obviously it turns into a murder, at which point, you know, the uniformed cops know what to do. They'll be led by a sergeant and an inspector and they'll start be putting, you know, a scene on. So the scene tape goes up. They start um keeping members of the public away because now everything within that crime scene uh will be you know or could be evidence you know there there could be various searches that have to take take place you know sort of fingertip searches within that scene to pick up that vital piece of evidence that cigarette butt dropped by the killer you know or, or anything you know um they'll start that process but really going forward the sort of longer term inquiries that then turn into or what could turn into, you know, the sort of major murder investigation will be taken over by CID and will definitely be run probably by one of these MIT teams, you know, this major investigation team. And in the first instance in London, a HAT team, the Homicide Action Team, will come out and that'll just be a couple of DCs probably or maybe a, a DS detective sergeant and a, and a DC detective constable that will come out in a car and they'll just sort of firefight that first scene. They'll triage it for that first golden hour. And they're the ones that will just make sure, you know, go and speak to the duty inspector and say, OK, is the scene taped off? Have we got a scene log started? Really important that there's a cop somewhere who's recording everyone who comes in and out of that scene, whether that's paramedics or, you know, um, uniform cops, you know, the duty inspector. When CID first turn up, no matter who it is, if they go in that scene, their names need to be recorded because later on, if they find a tiny bit of DNA on something, you know, it could be, um, you know, and they believe that's a suspect. Uh, very quickly, you can rule out all the cops that are there because you've got a list of everyone who's been in that scene. So that's very tightly controlled. And then going forward, they might start 
initial CCTV inquiries, lots of people now have, you know, ring doorbells, webcams, you know, and various bits and pieces, CCTV outside their house and things, uh, doorbell cams and, and things like that, you know, that may have recorded that vital piece of evidence. And what, the last thing you want, obviously, is for it to be recorded over. Um, so you have to seize that stuff really quickly. Um, so they might start that. There might be house-to-house -house inquiries, simple old-fashioned door knock. Hiya, sorry to bother you. It's been a bit of an incident on the street here. Um, just wondered if you saw or heard anything. You know, if it had been a shooting or something, obviously you'd be saying, did you hear any gunshots? And invariably the person might say, oh, I heard some fireworks, you know, at eight o'clock or whatever. And you'd be, actually, that was gunshots, you know. Um, but again, vital, you get into those people as soon as you can. So so that hat team, that, that double crew car will come out with detectives in it and just make sure those first inquiries are sort of started you know i mean the met you know have a lot of murders and they're pretty well versed in this stuff um so it's unlikely they'll miss anything but you can imagine that you know 48 hours later um when you get an sio a senior investigating officer in charge of you know sort of the team the cid team that's going to now run this murder comes in and says right so uh you know how's the house been done and everyone looks at each other blankly and goes oh no i thought you were doing it did you do it you know you can imagine it wouldn't happen probably, but, you know, those people come in just to make sure that those things are in place in the first instance. Um, so, yeah, CID now a bit like and I'm understanding that this is the same in the military in the military. You know, if you're in a certain regiment or a team or a unit, you always think your team or regiment is the best, you know, and everyone else, are, are, you know, are idiots, not up to the job, unprofessional, etc. That's no different in the police. It doesn't matter what team or unit you're on. You know, your team is always the best and pretty much anyone you come into contact with will be, you know, it's a bit of a them and us. Now, it, it's friendly banter mostly. It never gets any more than that. But, it, you know, it's always been the same in the police. And again, it, it kind of thrives on it. If you're a uniform cop, you know, CID perhaps will look down on you and be like, oh, you know, he's just a uniform wooden top. You know, he's he's kind of he's just a pleb on the street. Uh, you know, he's 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 a nobody. But the reality is it always makes you laugh because three months prior to that, this person was in uniform, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with you walking the beat as such. Um, then they're into CID and the sort of standing joke is now they've got a posh suit on some pointy brown shoes, you know, leather shiny shoes and they're a detective. You know, they've not done any of the courses or anything because ultimately what happens is detectives have to go off and do uh, quite a lengthy detective course. The time scale changes hugely as to how long that is. I think anything from kind of two weeks to, you know, six or eight weeks, depending on how specialist their area is going to be. Um, and then ultimately they have to take an exam. So that detective exam to actually, you know, become a detective. But when they first join, you know, they just sort of help out and do the basics. But they're wearing a suit, you know, and some some pointy shoes. So there's always a bit of Mickey take in there about, you know, pointy shoes don't make you a detective son, you know, etc. Um, and it's exactly the same, you know, all units are the same. When I was on firearms, you know, when I was on armed response vehicles, things like that, the standing joke is that ARVs, you know, you'd always wind them up like they're crayons, you know, they like to play with crayons and colour things in, you know, they're always, sometimes people sort of uh, try and make out that they're a bit sort of stupid, um, 
and a bit childish and therefore you know you'd always you know there'd be a bit of banter again between teams going oh did you bring your crayons you know because this is going to be a long job this one so you might want to do some colouring in you know while you're waiting um it's just good-hearted banter you know and it goes down well same with traffic you know uh traffic officers here the the sort of not very pleasant name is uh is black rats for traffic you know or it can be throughout some forces in fact it, virtually every force i've worked in um and that's down to the fact that um unpleasantly they used to joke that you know to get on traffic you basically had to give your mum a speeding ticket that was what got you on you know um probably not true <laughs> i'd like to think not but you know again it was a a bit of a wind up um and uh, yeah so so all these uh, are the same you know and and these things don't change you know it's just it's light-hearted banter but um it's good for a wind up and it doesn't matter and, and literally the day you walk out of traffic and into firearms you know you would join in with that banter that's just just how it was you know everyone always felt their team or unit was the same but i suppose it's all about um having a bit of pride in your team you know the riot teams in london um are called the tsg territorial support group but amongst their colleagues they were the thick and stupid group you know because they were knuckle draggers you know they were, invariably they were you know big muscly men or women you know dragging their knuckles down the street that basically just wanted to fight everyone well there's a there's an element of truth in that certainly um i mean they were they were fit guys and girls and you know they used to while they're on duty they were encouraged to go in the gym during their downtime because the role they carried out meant they had to be fit you know so it certainly um you know it, it was true to a degree but again just good fun but trust me you know if the chips were down and it was all going wrong you wanted the tsg coming or or the public order team or the firearms or the dog teams or whoever it was you know so all joking would be aside there and we'd be very grateful to have them that's for sure um so moving on to this job now that's probably the longest tangent i've ever gone off on um but uh, I, I say i don't think we'd mention cid much so i thought i'd just talk about them briefly um so this job today uh, I was talking about, so what happened was um, I was on the tutor unit again. I was still looking after new cops. I had probably only about three years in myself, so I was hardly experienced. But, you know, at the time uh, and probably, you know, even now as well, you know, three years on a team is is considered, you know, you've got a little bit of service. You've got a little bit of knowledge, especially in the, in the busier places, you know, because a lot can happen in three years. So I was looking after a probationer, a new cop. And uh, on this occasion, um, I had a female cop with me who was very good. She asked a lot of questions, which is fantastic. You know, there's no stupid questions, they say. And I'm really, you know, I'm glad she did. But she was a little bit like a needy child in that she never stopped. You know, and, and if you told her something and, you, and she'd say, well, why? You know, and you'd be like, that's just how it works. You know, it it is what it is kind of thing you know yeah but why you know <laughs> you kind of so it was a bit frustrating at times but everyone's different and i'd much rather have that than you know someone who literally sits there like you know mute and sort of doesn't say anything never asks a question and just accepts everything you know there's nothing more frustrating when you join a team and you can clearly see that something is very old-fashioned and um you know should be changed and when you say what well, why do you do it like that you know and you get that answer an answer i hate you know we've always done it like that you know and you sort of roll your eyes and you're like it doesn't mean it works and it doesn't mean you know you can't look at you know moving on because things have changed in the last 20 years when you first came up with this idea and it was really good anyway um so this probationer yeah she was a good girl and um i liked her 
and we came on duty. We were expecting to do a, a Friday late shift, so it was going to be working till two in the morning. So we were all kind of prepped and ready that there was probably going to be some fighting in the town centre, you know, as there normally was. But actually, when we came on, CID came to the tutor unit. Now, the tutor unit was used a little bit as... Um, as an overflow in terms of if there was a job that was something different or or a bit out of the ordinary that uh, you didn't want to get the teams the normal cops to deal with you might go to the tutor unit because they you knew they had a bit of spare capacity and they could maybe put some time or some people into something like house to house for example if you wanted to you know hit an area for house to house inquiries for a particular incident you might well have uh, chosen to come to them and on this occasion that's what happened cid came to us and said look we've got this job we we're you know we're strapped we've got loads of other work on we haven't really got the people to put to it but it's a goodie and we think it might be a good one you know for a for a you know a couple of probationers so we're like yeah sure you know and, and we wanted to be known that we would take these jobs on that was the whole idea um so we said right what's the job so the situation was there was a i wouldn't say stately home but a very nice posh big big detached house it was probably like you know eight or ten bedrooms quite old um really really nice property on the outskirts of the town we worked in and what had happened was the residents had gone away on holiday um and on in some occasions um forces uh, you can notify them and say look just so you know i'm going away on holiday no one should be at my address um and that way if there's a call comes in you know about intruders or i don't know i've seen torch lights flashing in the address you know the cops can look up on the system and go actually we know they're on holiday so this could be genuine um so uh, and and that's what had happened on this occasion the people had not only let the, the police know but also their neighbors and said look you know we are going away just keep an eye on the place we're going to be away for a couple of weeks so what had happened was you know they'd been away for a few days and their burglar alarm had gone off at the address um so firstly the um the alarm company went out because i think they sort of sent security guards out to check on the address um, and they called the police because sure enough, somebody had broken into the house. And when they went into the house, now, remember, this is a really nice house. Um, they had a series of, you know, uh, very expensive uh, sort of unique artworks and paintings. And what had happened was the burglars had come in, but they must have been disturbed, probably by the alarm going off. So they'd actually stacked up the uh, the artwork and put it to one side Um with a view to coming back probably and stealing it again on another day because they wanted to see was this burglar alarm um, attached you know to a security company was someone gonna you know just ignore it because quite often you know alarms go off we're all used to sort of hearing you know car alarms and, and burglar alarms so sometimes you know they just people go oh it's just a false alarm you know no one actually checks on it so rather than just cutting their losses these guys um, who were presumably quite professionals because these weren't your sort of drug addicts stealing, you know, a DVD player to sell for their next 20 quid hit. They'd selected, you know, the, the very expensive artwork and they'd stacked it up carefully, ready to take when they came back, presumably, you know, once uh, they thought the sort of coast was clear. So the plan was rather than, you know, seal it all off and what have you, CID came and saw us and said, look, we're pretty sure we know who this team is. It's a three man team and um, we'd really like to catch them. You know, they've been doing a series of burglaries in and around the area, always targeting their MO, their modus operandi, how they do the crime is that they only attack, you know, uh, you know, sort of well off big detached houses 
that they believe sort of hold, um, you know, sort of fine artwork. And that's exactly what would happen. So they said, we really would like to catch this team, but we just haven't got the resources to put to it. So they put together this operation and basically involved us on the tutor unit. But the plan was we were going to have something like four other double crew uniform cars that were going to be sat right out in the sort of quiet country roads tucked away down lanes within radio range, but um, not visible. And the idea was that they were going to put two of us, uh, a tutor and a tutee, i.e. me and and my um, colleague, um, into this house. So the plan was that hopefully they would come back and when they were, you know, once they entered the house and were basically red-handed, we'd put up on the radio, you know, that that's it, they're inside. We would try and get hands on and arrest them as best we could um, while being supported by the other four cars that were going to come flying in, you know. And, uh, of course, my probationer was very excited at this. You know, she was like, oh, wow, this is like stuff off the telly. You know, this is going to be brilliant, you know. And I was kind of a bit more, well, yeah, it could be. Or more likely we're going to sit there all night and nothing will happen. Um, because, obviously, they had no clue whether they were going to come back in one day's time, you know, a week's time, or, or not at all. You know, they may not have come back. So we just didn't know. So I wasn't getting too excited about it at this point. So off we went and uh, basically... The radios at the time, they were the standard old radios. It wasn't what we call airwave now, which is fantastic and generally gets, you know, a signal anywhere in the country. It's a really, really good system. Um, it was just down to, uh, you know, the sort of local radio signals and it was very, very patchy at best. Um, but they put us in, you know, we were dropped off by CID at this address, me and I think her name was Sarah. So we were put into this address and... Um, basically we just had to sit and wait you know that was it and we got we went in there in in daylight although it was dusk you know so it was quite late um and i think there'd been a smash window around the back of this property that's how they got in originally so obviously we left it all and we made it look entirely like no one had been there you know the, the police hadn't been there security no one else because we wanted them to come back and um you know and see that the place sort of hadn't been touched and in fact where they looked through the smash window, had they stood the other side outside and looked through the smash window, they'd have seen the artwork still stacked up. It was left exactly where they'd left it. Um, so we sat at the bottom of the staircase, but just out of view, so that should they look through the windows, they wouldn't see us. But um, they would see, uh, you know, that the artwork was untouched and hopefully that would entice them in, you know. So potentially it, it could be quite exciting if the job had come off. Um, and we didn't know what was going to happen, but we felt, you know, a bit reassured that there was these other cars there. Um, so in we go to the address and obviously um, the, uh, you know, there's there's a couple of sort of small lights on and things that I think the owners left on. They left it exactly how it was. So we weren't sitting in darkness, um, but obviously it was pretty quiet. And I remember there was a big grandfather clock that was ticking away. And because we were trying to be quiet, you know, you could hear this thing uh, ticking away. So we sat there and I said to this girl, Sarah, you know, look, the idea is we're quite quiet. And obviously we can't be sitting in there chatting, bearing in mind she was a one for questions. You know, so I said, if we're talking, it's got to be in whispers and we just sit and wait. You know, and she was like, OK, this is going to be really exciting, though, isn't it? You know, and I was like, yeah, it is. But do you remember, we can even whisper quietly. You know, we don't have to whisper loud, bless her. Um, so anyway, we sat there and we waited. And it got later and later and obviously it became dark and it went on through the evening and we had earpieces on our radio so we could hear what was going on. But obviously, had you walked outside the property, you wouldn't have heard anything. And we're sitting there 
And uh, every now and then she'd ask a question, albeit at a whisper, about what happens if this happens? What what should I do with this? And what if they come in here? And what if they do this? And I was getting a bit fed up after a while. You know, she'd gone on and on about, and we dealt with every single scenario. Problem was, I also knew the three burglars that the CID were talking about that they thought was part of the team that was coming in. And I knew that one of them was very, very violent. Um, and uh, one of the other ones uh, also had sort of an, a previous for carrying uh, a shotgun, uh, a sawn-off shotgun when he did his burglaries, you know, to threaten people. So I wasn't, you know, massively made up at the thought of me and and uh, this little probationer potentially facing three burglars, one of whom may be armed and one I knew was very violent if it was the team they thought it was. So the problem was, as the night went on, and obviously it got dark and it got quieter and you, your sort of senses got tuned in. You're listening to every little creak and groan and noise and movement. And every now and then Sarah would go, what's that? You know, and you'd be like, what? You know, and she'd be like, I heard a noise. I heard a creak. Whatever. You sit there a bit longer and you go, no, I can't hear anything. And then she'd go, how long would it take for the other cars to get here? You know, and I'm going, only about five minutes. You know, they're quite close now. Shh, you know, and then 10 minutes would pass. And then she'd be like, could all four cars get here within five minutes, you think? You know, and you're like, I don't know, probably roughly, you know. She's going, what if there's more than three of them? I was like, I don't know, yeah, we'll just deal with it. You know, you can't pre-plan these things too much. We've just got to deal with what we find. And she'd be like, okay. So then she'd be quiet for a bit. And then it'd be like, and what about if, and you're like, oh, God, you know, what if my radio battery dies? And she went through every single scenario. And as the night was going on, she was winding herself up and getting more and more worried. Of course, she wasn't exactly helping me either, if I'm honest. And she was making me a little bit twitchy because I was thinking, I've not been in a violent situation with this girl yet. I don't know if she's going to back me up or scream and run for the hills, you know. So um, I was getting sort of increasingly twitchy. Anyway, um, as the night went on, the pubs and clubs started and then they kicked out. And there was a few fights in the town. And although these four cars that were stacked up around us had been told, you know, or in fact, the control room had been told, do not touch those four cars. You know, they're on an operation. You don't need to know what it is. But, you know, they're not uh, resources that can be used. Of course, as it got busier and busier and then someone put up for an assistance shout, you know, at a fight in town, uh, the control room said, you know, any unit for assistance. So two of the cars went, which left us with two, you know, and I was like, oh, typical, you know, um, but I, but equally, had it been me putting up the assistance shout, I totally understood it. So off they went. And uh, so uh, that was our two cars gone, you know, and then something else happened. There was a really serious accident, I think, you know, way away. So they called up and the third car said, well, I'll have to go, you know, so off they went. So we're now left with one car. So I was like, this is not ideal, you know, uh, and now it's just me, um, little Sarah and, uh, you know, and the other car that's five minutes away. But I was saying, that's OK, it'd be fine. And they, I knew the other cars, as soon as they finished or whatever it was, would come back. So um, we've been sitting there. And of course, now something else happens. And finally, the fourth car peels away. So we were on our own, exactly what we were told wouldn't happen, you know, but, you know, hey, it's the police, stuff happens and you just got to deal with it. But I thought, I still don't think anyone's turning up, quite frankly. Um, so we're sat there in the quiet and Sarah's continuing. But I think now she'd actually scared herself silly and was now no longer asking questions. I think she was just waiting, you know, for um, to be relieved, because actually I think at, at about three or four in the morning, 
um, somebody was due to take over from us, you know, and we were going to swap swap out with another team. So she, I noticed she was watch, looking at her watch all the time, like every 10 minutes, you know. So I think she was actually now willing for nothing to happen and the time, you know, to get through to when we were going to be swapped over with this other, this other pair of cops. So we sat there and all we can hear basically is the ticking of this clock, you know. So we're just sitting there in a the silence, tick, tick, tick. And then every now and then, of course, it would do a loud bong, you know, as it reached every 15 minutes or every hour or whatever, and it would chime out. And it would always make you jump, even though you were semi-ready for it. So you're like, okay, right, this is fine. And it was getting darker and darker. Anyway, so it's now about three in the morning, something like that. And it went particularly quiet. And I noticed it as well. And I was thinking, it's even quieter than normal, you know. And I'm not even, it wasn't noisy before, but there was, it gone even quieter and we couldn't really figure it out. So, of course, Sarah whispers to me, it's very quiet. And I was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> and we were obviously both having the same thought. And then she said, now, the other thing that had been going on that we hadn't realised or noticed was um, there was a fridge on in the kitchen, which we could hear, and it was humming, you know, so it was humming away as well as the, the clock. But Sarah suddenly said to me, the fridge has stopped humming. I can't hear the fridge. And, of course, I listened, sort of cocked my head to one side, and I was thinking, she's right. The fridge has gone off as well. So now I'm starting to think, why has the fridge gone off? And then I'm thinking, power cut. So then I'm thinking either we're really unlucky and there's been just a power cut that happens every now and then for whatever reason, or someone's cut the power. Now, bearing in mind what we were sitting there for, Sarah was a clever girl. She also figured it out at the same time as me. And so she whispers back, do you think they've cut the power? And I was like, maybe, now shut up, you know. So I tried to put up on my radio as quietly as I could, you know, I think the power's been cut to the house. Because I knew now we had no backup at all. And I just wanted to make people know. And also perhaps to remind them that we were there in this situation. Because none of these cars had come back. Um, so I was thinking, oh no, you know, they're going to screw your house. We're sat here uh, and it's just us two. So, of course, when I put it up on the radio. And I remember what I said about the radio system. I was getting from the control room back in my earpiece. Last unit, go ahead, you're very faint. And I was like, no, not now, please work now. So I'm like, they've cut you know, and was giving my, my call sign. And they're going, no, last unit, you're broken. We can't get you. And I was like, oh, Jesus, you know, <laughs> they're just not hearing me. So I'm trying to put it out, but we never got the message out. They didn't hear us. And I was thinking, you know, right, we are truly on our own. So I said to Sarah exactly that, you know, we are on our own, which raises the level of force potentially we can use because there's us maybe in a fight with armed, violent burglars, only two of us and no backup coming, you know. So the level of uh, of force that we're able to justify and use has just gone up considerably. Although, again, looking at Sarah and knowing how new she was, I, I you know, I wasn't massively confident in her abilities or, or my own, quite frankly, at this point, because um, we basically spooked ourselves, you know, the pair of us. So we're sitting there really quiet and listening. No noise from the fridge. Then we hear a noise outside and I was like, gee, I don't believe it. They're actually coming. Um, so we listened a bit more. And uh, what it, then we heard this ear curdling scream, which we both almost jumped out of our skins. And I don't know uh, if you have it where you live, but certainly in the UK, there's a lot of foxes about. 
Now, when the foxes scream at night, they put out this horrific high-pitched sort of blood-curdling scream that you'd be convinced that someone's been murdered. And what we'd heard outside was a fox who typically went and stood right by the back door when he let out this scream. We both almost jumped out of our skins. I thought Sarah was going to grab hold of me, you know, and sort of cuddled me. But um, yeah, I must admit, it definitely made me jump as well. So we sat there still. And at this point, I got my baton out and laid it across my lap because I thought, this is it. They're coming in. Um, although I realised that was a fox, but I thought, they've cut the power, I'm sure they're still coming in. So we waited, and we waited, and there was no more noise, and it was silent, and then the power came back on, we could hear the fridge humming away, um, and, uh, you know, kind of things returned to sort of normal. Then one of the cars called up that had been nearby and said, just so you know, you know, that's us back in position A or three or whatever we called it. One of the four positions and very quickly the other four cars arrived back as well. And I said to them, just so you know, the power's been cut. It's come back on. Um, and then one of them confirmed, oh, yeah, there's been a power cut in the town. You know, <laughs> So I was like, right, OK. <laughs> and, um, and basically about an hour later, half an hour later, there was nothing else happened. And uh, the two cops that were going to relieve us came in and took over from us. We had a quick swap round and that was it. We went off. So, so actually, for all that, nothing happened. <laughs> so possibly you're a bit let down there by the end of the story. But from my point of view... Um, we'd basically scared ourselves silly all night sat in this place. Uh, nothing had happened, although when we'd gone outside, we did find uh, on the periphery some fresh tyre tracks um, that hadn't been there when we went in. Now, we never heard a vehicle at all, and you could hear it really clearly um, if the engine had been running. Um, and actually, um, they got some CCTV off a, a neighbour's camera uh, some week or so later, and they actually uh, saw a car that came down the lane, but it had turned its engine and lights off at the top of this hill that led to this property. And they basically rolled down this hill um, and then stopped outside the address briefly um, when we were in there. So the thinking is the team had come back um, and that possibly the power cut had put them off. Um, it made them think, because I think a couple of these lights that we couldn't see, but there were sort of lamps, you know, in the window had gone on and then off, uh, sorry, gone off and then on again, which possibly made them, you know, might have spooked them and, and think that actually uh, something, you know, somebody was in there. So, so we do believe that actually they did come back, but they decided against it and they left it in the end because they then let their handbrake off and rolled back off down the lane and away before presumably they started their um, their engines and went. The CCTV wasn't good enough to pick out, you know, registration numbers or anything like that. It just showed a car with some figures in it. Um, so it's an interesting one. They might they may have come back. We don't know for sure. Um, but stupidly, I let slip to one of my colleagues that, whew, you know, spooked me a little bit in there. You know, I thought when they were coming, there was no cars to back us up. And that was it. For the next month or so, all I got the Mickey taken out was, oh, here he is. You know, he's scared of the dark. He's the only cop that's scared of the dark. Oh, we'll get you a torch. I kept finding torches, you know, put in my tray and in my bag and things. Don't worry, we've got you an extra torch you know, in case you're scared of the dark. You know, so the classic uh, police job humour came back in um, and I got a bit of stick for that. 
But uh, yeah, possibly a bit of a letdown for you at the end of that story. But you learned a bit about CID and uh, hopefully it made you chuckle anyway. But uh, thanks very much for coming back and listening again. Um, that was episode 23 and we'll continue on next week. Take it easy. Cheers. Bye.